Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning on another Lord's Day that he has given to us. Uh, Today we're going to conclude our study of the book of Galatians. So this is uh, the 13th, believe it or not, the 13th sermon, and this is the final sermon in this series. For me personally, this is actually the first complete book of the Bible that I've preached through here from the pulpit. So um, I'm very thankful to have had this opportunity to do this. God has taught us so many wonderful things through this book of Galatians by the Apostle Paul. Uh, We've gone verse by verse. That's why it's taken 13 sermons to do this, but we've gone verse by verse through this letter as I was asked to fill in in the preaching rotation whenever I was needed. So thank you for being patient with me through the study, and I'm just so thankful to be able to preach God's word whenever he gives me the opportunity to do that. So please open your Bibles now. Let's get in here to finish up Galatians. This is chapter 6. And you can follow along with me either from your Bibles or I think the verses will be on the screen as well as I read the final verses of this book. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 18. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh and who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that, you, that uh, they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. His last word there in this book. 
So this is God's word. Let's pray before going any further. Father, again, thank you for this Lord's Day and this time of worship here with this local body of believers here at Walton Community Church as we strive to worship you in spirit and in truth. What an awesome God you are. Forgive us when we lose sight of who you truly are. You are the eternal, sovereign God of the universe. You created everything as as George read today. You are the the creator of everything that there is on earth and in heaven. You know the end from the beginning. Thank you for your grace that is given freely to us, even as we are still sinners. Just thank you for giving us Jesus and the gift of salvation through faith in him. Meet us here in this place now. Give me the words to say, to proclaim your word rightly. And use this time for your glory today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, these final words of Paul may at first seem like just a series of disconnected statements, but Paul's actually doing two things as he signs off and ends this letter. The first thing is in verses 6 through 10, and there his final warning And the second thing is in verses 11 through 18, and they are his final invitation. His warning and his invitation are essentially the same message, the message that underlies pretty much every line of this letter to the Galatians, and it is live by the gospel. And that's going to be the title of this message, live by the gospel. So let's dig a little deeper now into verse 6 as Paul begins his final warning to the Galatians. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. First of all, verse 6 basically tells us that all Christians need to have been those that have been taught the word. We all need to be taught the word, right? We all need to be under the teaching of the word of God. From the Greek phrase here, the one who is taught the word, I've, I discovered that that phrase, we actually get the word catechized, like in catechism. And this shows how important it was for the new converts at the time of Paul to be given a body of Christian doctrine, a catechism, which was taught to them by an instructor. So I'm thankful that we use the New City Catechism here at WCC on a weekly basis, mainly during our Sunday school season. And that simply teaches the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. Because we need to hear these basic doctrines today just as much as the early Christians did in Paul's time. I know that we mainly emphasize teaching the New City Catechism to our children and to our youth Sunday school classes, but how important it is for all of us, including all of the adults, to get in on this. That's one of the reasons we recite the answers together on most Sunday mornings during our worship service. You may not have realized it yet, but we are being taught the word when we recite the catechism question and answer. 
And we are being taught the word when we respond together with scripture to the call to worship and to the corporate confession or when we say our memory verses together or when we say the Lord's prayer together or when we hear God's word preached. We are being taught the word in so many different ways during every worship service here at WCC. God's word is central to our worship services and I hope everyone recognizes that. Paul expects all new Christians to receive this basic discipleship teaching, this catechism. And he wants them to share all good things with their instructor, as it says in verse 6. Some simply read this verse to mean that a student and a teacher must go about their task of instruction as full partners together. The student is not a passive bystander and the teacher is not going to be an overbearing dictator. They work together for the purpose of Christian teaching. And all that sounds well and good, but share all good things here in verse 6 almost certainly means financial support. It benefits both the learner and the teacher if the instructor is eventually supported to do the job full time. In this light, the salary of a Christian teacher, or we can use the word pastor here as well, is not to be seen as a payment. Rather, it's a fellowship. Just as teachers share the spiritual gifts of teaching that God has given them with the learner, the learners share the financial gifts God has given them with the teacher. The elders here at WCC, we long for the time, hopefully in about 28 months, when Pastor Jeff will be able to come on staff as our first full-time pastor. Yes, Pastor Jeff, I'm counting the months (laughs) because not only I'm excited for you about this, but I'm excited about our church and I'm already praying for you as we prepare for this. Now, we acknowledge how God has blessed our church with bivocational elders. And we acknowledge that we prayerfully determine that as we planted this church. We believe that is how God wanted us to begin this ministry here in Walton County and the surrounding areas. And we are in awe of how God has provided for our church with resources and we pay housing allowances to our two main teaching elders, Jeff and Daniel. And we've been able to increase those housing allowances each year. That has been all God's doing. But soon, moving forward with a full-time pastor, that will be a huge milestone for our church. And as we prepare our resources for this, as we are able to add a full-time salary gradually in our budget, we see it all working in connection with Pastor Jeff's timing of his retirement at his current place of employment. What a coincidence, right? Those air quotes are kind of fun to do. What a coincidence, right? That that we will be able to support a full-time salary right when Pastor Jeff retires. Well, we know there's no such thing 
as a coincidence. This is God's timing. This is God's providence over our church. Harlan, you did a great job in teaching our Sunday school class this past year about the providence of God. Well, here it is in action for our church. So in light of all this, we should give generously to our church. We should share all good things, as Paul says, which includes taking care of our staff. We should not just be consumers when we come to church to simply benefit from the teaching of the word without doing significant giving to the church. But remember that this giving needs to be accompanied by the right heart attitude. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says this. And there it is for you up on the slide. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We must give with a cheerful heart. Christian teaching is not just one more service to be paid for, but we need to look at it as a rich fellowship and a mutual sharing of the gifts of God within the church, as Paul alludes to here in verse 6. And then Paul immediately follows this idea of supporting those who teach us the truth of the gospel with the warning, do not be deceived. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 together. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In some way, this is the reason of the whole epistle of Galatians. Many of these young Christians in these churches had presumably been catechized. They'd been taught by Paul himself. Now they're in, in great danger of being deceived by the false teachers, the, the Judaizers. We've talked about them. Paul has argued that these false teachers are not in it for themselves. I'm sorry, that they are in it for themselves to bring themselves honor and approval. So Paul is saying to them, he's saying this, don't be deceived. In the next sentence, Paul issues another stern warning using a very familiar experience to his audience, the agricultural process of sowing and reaping. Now, I'm not any kind of expert on gardening. In fact, Debbie and I seem to do a very poor job of keeping plants healthy or sometimes alive at all. So I'm thankful to have some insight here on these verses from Tim Keller. In farming or gardening, there are some absolute principles. And Paul appears to want us to see at least two of these principles. First, whatever you sow, you will reap. If you sow tomato seeds, you're not going to get corn, no matter how much you want corn to grow. Second, whatever you sow, you will reap. Though the seed is in the ground with no effect, seems like a long time, it will come up. 
It isn't the reaping that determines the harvest, but the sowing. And this law applied to farming and gardening is as unstoppable in the moral and spiritual realm as well. God is not mocked. He can't be treated lightly. Verse 8 says that the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature he will reap corruption, or in other words, destruction. And this verse has a lot of layers to it. This doesn't mean that God is a vengeful God sitting in heaven looking to avenge any slights or insults. God is not just waiting to punish us for the least transgression. We know that the Father loves us so much that he is for us and not against us. But the image of sowing and reaping indicates that there are moral consequences for our behavior. Paul is saying that sin makes things fall apart. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Sin will always bear destruction. Never joy in life. And whatever you sow, you will reap. Your sins will come home to roost. The consequences can't be held off. But Paul's warning here must also be read in the light of the rest of his letter. He's already shown in Galatians that a sinful nature is part of our heart and that it wants to keep control of our lives by being our own Savior and Lord, which resists the gospel of free grace and seeks continually to earn our own righteousness. Throughout this epistle, Paul has indicated that true Christians can and very often do fall back into some kind of slavery to sin. For, and for that period of time or in that part of their lives, they lose grip on the gospel. But they don't cease to be Christians, for they are saved by grace alone. Christians everywhere are considered by God in one sense as sinful, but in another sense as righteous. The Holy Spirit is now living in them. God will hold them fast. As Nick preached last week, Jesus takes our sins on him and then he gives us his righteousness. How amazing is that? As Christians, God doesn't see our righteousness or lack of it. God sees the righteousness of Christ when he sees us. But Paul is warned that if the gospel is rejected and a works righteousness is adopted, slavery to sin will follow. And if anyone outright rejects the gospel and lives completely to the flesh, seeking and serving something other than Christ as their Savior, that's people who are not truly saved, then they will reap eternal destruction rather than eternal life. The warning is scary, right? But the promise is wonderful. As it says at the end of verse 8, and here's the promise, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If we live by the Spirit, we will enjoy the approval and assurance and fulfillment and joy 
of the Christian life now and know that it will continue beyond our death. So how, how can we be someone who sows to please the Spirit? Right? Here's how, by obeying God just out of the grateful joy that comes from knowing our status as children of God. Not by following and obeying any rules. We don't live God's way in order to become his children. We live God's way out of gratitude that we are already his children. That's part of the good news. When we obey God out of the grateful joy that comes from him, the idols which controlled our lives lose their power and we're free to live for God. Let's look at verse 9. And let us grow weary, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Day by day, sowing to please the Holy Spirit requires us to not grow weary in doing good. We have to realize that there is always a delay between sowing and reaping. New farmers and new gardeners especially will experience a lot of anxiety watching their dormant seed for weeks and weeks and feeling it will never come up, but it always comes up in the end. Paul has also warned sinners that though it may seem like a long time that your sin hasn't found you, eventually it will. But the encouragement here is for those who are living for Christ. People who do good will see the fruits and benefits eventually. Paul is encouraging these young Christians not to lose heart because just as inexperienced gardeners might fail to water and weed in their discouragement over the slow-growing seed, so Christians might fail to persevere in their service and their ministry. A lack of follow-through in ministry can stunt the harvest, just as it does in gardening. But in due season, we will reap. Let's look at verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What is this doing good mentioned here? Paul says we are to do good to all people, to everyone, especially to those who belong to the family of believers, the household of faith. This verse shows what the Christian life is all about. And it's really simple. It's not about meetings, programs, keeping count of attendance or conversion, but it's doing good to the person right in front of you, giving him or her what is best for them. Doing good implies that we must not confine ourselves to just evangelism and discipling, even those are good things, but we are to love in deed as well as in word. We are to give the people right in front of us any aid that is necessary to meet any need within our power to meet, whether it's material, whether it's social or spiritual. 
Debbie and I experienced firsthand folks in our church bringing us meals during Debbie's recent recovery time from surgery. Thank you, church, for doing good to others in the household of faith. Paul says this love should be directed to everyone, but but don't be immediately overwhelmed. Paul has already added here in this verse, as we have opportunity. We are not expected personally to meet all the needs of all the people everywhere. Just look for people that God puts in your path. He will do that. God will put people in your path. But mainly, this love is to be given to the household of faith. This is a wonderful phrase here, implying that all Christians are a family. Christians are brothers and sisters in God's household. We must do the most good with those who are in fellowship with us. And for us, that at least starts with our fellow covenant WCC members. Paul's terminology of household of faith for sure has the universal church in mind, but I believe there's an aspect to the local church here as well. And as we say here at WCC, church membership does matter. Mark Dever, in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, I quoted something from that last week, but here he writes about the importance and significance of identifying and joining a local church. This is from Mark Dever. He says, church membership is our opportunity to grasp hold of each other in responsibility and love by identifying ourselves with a particular church We let the pastors and other members of that local church know that we intend to be committed in attendance, giving, prayer, and service. We allow fellow believers to have great expectations of us in these areas, and we make it known that we are the responsibility of this local church. We assure the church of our commitment to Christ in serving with them And we call for their commitment to serve and encourage us as well, end quote. Local church membership is important because it's in the local church where we mostly live out our Christian life and where we can do good for each other, as Paul says. The local church is where we experience the special presence of Jesus. It's where we make disciples by teaching God's word. It's where we are united as Christians in worship, prayer, and fellowship on a weekly basis. It's a place where we can exercise the spiritual gifts that God has given each of us for service. It's not only a place where we are protected and cared for, but a place where we are held accountable. And if you are not a member of a church, a church can't hold you accountable and that's not good for you. And of course, a local church is a place where we partake in the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism together. That's one aspect of doing good by belonging to and identifying with and serving in a local church. There shouldn't be any question of which church you are a member of or which church holds you accountable. Knowing that is good for you 
and knowing that is good for the local church. Let's move on to verses 11 and 12 together. Paul continues here, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now Paul seems to want to snatch the pen from his scribe who's obviously taking his dictation and he wants to write his name in his own handwriting for effect. And Paul actually does that in several of his letters. He then begins here in verse 11 with his last appeal, his last invitation for the Galatians to keep trusting the gospel for salvation and living it out day by day. This is a letter from a man that deeply loves the men and women he's writing to in the region of Galatia. He wants to convince them that real Christianity is a matter of inward change, not external observance. And again, he focuses on the motives of the false teachers. Paul says they want to make a good showing in the flesh. In other words, they want to make a good impression outwardly. Paul has already said in chapter 5 that the preaching of the gospel is offensive to the human heart. People find it insulting to be told that they are too weak and too sinful to do anything to contribute to their salvation. The gospel is offensive to liberal-minded people who say that the gospel is intolerant because it states that the only way to be saved is through the cross of Christ. But the gospel is also offensive to conservative-minded people because it states that without the cross, good people are in as much trouble as bad people. Ultimately, the gospel is offensive because the cross stands against all schemes of self-salvation. Even if there are some in the world that acknowledge the benefits of religion and morality in general, thinking it might be good for society, the world would still be offended by the cross. There's a lot about Jesus that offends people. So people who love the cross and try to live holy lives are persecuted. Christian love and holiness provokes hatred. The greater the holiness and love, the greater the human hostility towards it. And that seems kind of insane. No man was ever more loving than Jesus Christ. Yet his love makes people angry. And so the cross is by nature offensive. And we can only appreciate its sweetness if we first grapple with its offense. If someone understands the cross, it's either the greatest thing in their life or it's an insult to them. If it's neither one of those two things, they probably haven't understood it fully yet. When we understand the cross, we understand that Christ loved us so much that he bore our sins on the cross. He bore the penalty meant for us, turned aside God's judgment, God's wrath from us, and he canceled sin. He restores the brokenness of our lives. He rebuilds 
shattered relationships. The new life that we find in Christ is granted to us out of the sheer grace of God. It is received by faith, not by any works or rules we follow. As we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus, we confess him as Lord and we bow down to him joyfully. The gospel is truly good news, church. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. One day God will make all things new. The good news of what Jesus did on the cross culminates in a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, where neither sin nor any of its effects can survive and where we enjoy the presence of God forever. That's how much God loves us. He gave us his only son through his death on the cross so that we can be saved. May this be the day of salvation for someone here today. Just as Pastor Daniel preached a message about the thief on the cross with Jesus, he did that just a few weeks ago, and how the thief would be with Jesus that very day in paradise. He would be saved that day. Today could also be the day of your salvation. If God has been speaking to you recently, or if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today, and you need to talk with someone after the service, please, please see me or any one of our elders and deacons before you leave. All right, finishing up verse 12. The false savior these Judaizers are worshiping is their approval. That's what's going on under their legalistic teaching. And the only reason they teach what they do, and Paul says it here in verse 12, is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. The Judaizers wanted these Galatian Gentile Christians to still hang on to the law to be saved and not be saved by faith alone in the cross of Christ. All right, let's move on to verse 13. Thanks for doing such a great job on the slides back there. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. These false teachers want to boast. They've gotten into religion for the fame, prestige, and honor it can bring them in the world. Their ministry, as we have talked about before, is a form of self-salvation. As a result of this concern for appearances and acceptance by the world, these false teachers are offering a religion that mainly focuses on externals and behavior. For them, it was mainly circumcision and the ceremonial law. Rather than an internal change of heart, motives, and character. The gospel is inside out. An inner change of heart then leads to a new motivation for our behavior. These false teachers are outside out, focusing on behavior and externals, never dealing with the heart, and always just remaining superficial. Paul makes the most telling critique on this way of religion when he says, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Biblical legalism 
can't work if we really read the law and see what it commands. For example, love your neighbor as yourself. In that one simple command, we will see that we can't possibly save ourselves because we can't obey that fully. We may think that we can in a surface way, but we can't love our neighbor as ourself perfectly. And God demands perfection. God's standard would be that our actions and our heart loves our neighbor perfectly. But Jesus is the only one that can love perfectly. A religion based on externals and behavior as a way of salvation may cause us to have pride and bring popularity to us, but it can't deliver the eternal life it promises because we can't live up to it. Ultimately, Paul is saying the heart of your religion is what you boast in. What at the fundamental level is the reason that you think you are in a right relationship with God? If the cross is just an aid to that, but you have to complete your salvation with good works, then it's really your works which make the difference between you being headed for heaven or not headed for heaven. So you boast about your flesh, your own efforts. That's kind of an attractive sounding message, isn't it? To be able to pat yourself on the back for having reserved a place for yourself in heaven. But if you understand the gospel, you boast exclusively and only in the cross. Our identity, our self-image is based on what gives us a sense of dignity and significance. It's what we boast in. Religion leads us to boast in something about us. The gospel leads us to boast in the cross of Jesus. That means our identity in Jesus is confident and secure. And so we can boast, however humbly, based on a profound sense of our flaws and our neediness. Let's look at verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What a wonderful verse. This is the gospel summarized in one remarkable sentence. Listen to the first part of this verse again. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved solely and wholly because of Christ's work, not our own. He has reserved a place for us in heaven, given freely to us by him. We should never boast in or we should take no credit for our standing with God except on the cross. What Christ has done is now something we boast in. To boast is to joyously exult and have high confidence in something. To know that you're saved by Christ's work alone on the cross brings us a joyous, boasting confidence. Not a self-confidence, but a Christ confidence. Let's look at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So Paul basically restates here what he said back in chapter 5, Verse 6, if you remember what he said, neither circumcision 
nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And now Paul calls our faith working through a new creation here in verse 15. Paul's point is that the two wordings are essentially the same thing. The gospel creates a new motivation for obedience. Grateful love coming from a faith of what Christ has done. This new motivation renews us from the inside out. It's a new birth, a supernatural transformation of character. It's a new creation. Religious or moral accomplishments and religious or moral failures are irrelevant when it comes to salvation because it isn't about what we have done, but what Christ has done. Because of the gospel of Christ crucified, Paul says, I don't feel inferior to anyone. Circumcision means nothing. And because of the gospel, I don't feel superior to anyone. Uncircumcision means nothing. All that matters is that through Christ crucified, we are made a new creation. The gospel changes our future, giving us a place in Christ's perfected recreation to come. And the gospel changes my present giving me a whole new self-image and a whole new way of relating to everyone. Verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Here, Paul calls living by the gospel a rule. It's a way of life, a foundation of everything. Anyone who sets the gospel of Christ as their rule, Paul says, will find peace and mercy In saying the Israel of God, Paul is likely referencing the New Testament church. Christians are all Abraham's children, heirs to God's promises to him. It's the faith line that counts. And let's conclude this book today. Amen, we're going to conclude it. Here we go. By looking at these last two verses, verses 17 and 18 together. From now on, let no one cause me trouble For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul concludes by pointing to the fact that he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. So what are these marks? He's probably referring to the the literal scars he had from the torture, imprisonments, and beatings he had received for the sake of Christ. The teachers of the false, popular, self-salvation gospel had none of these because the world loved to hear their message. But Paul is a true minister. He's a true apostle. He even argued that, if you remember back in chapters 1 and 2 of this book. To paraphrase Paul, he's saying here, Do not doubt me, for I have the real marks of apostolic authority, not greatness and riches, but signs of suffering and weakness. And then Paul signs off in verse 18. He's reminding the Galatians of the message of this letter. The grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is the starting point and the way to continue for all that we ever need in the Christian life. We begin by grace, by being justified by faith alone in what Christ has done, and we continue in grace 
Not by anything we do, but what Christ is doing in our life. This gospel is what the Galatians needed to know and love. This is the gospel that you and I need to know and love. It isn't a set of rules and abstract truths. It's a way of life, of a deeply fulfilling, secure life now and an eternal life to come. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, help us to grow to love you more. Help us to grow in the fruit of the spirit that we've gone through in this book. Help that it changes our hearts and minds to be more like Jesus. Help us to be a church here at WCC that stays true to your word. We are saved only by your grace. May this be the day of salvation for someone here. Meet us in a special way now as we come to your table. You are mighty and glorious and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.